0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast with me, Jez Nelson. Richard E. Grant will be back in the chair for the next episode, but for now I'll be selecting some more choice morsels for the second of our special highlights editions. We'll find out what makes Irvin Welsh emotional, hear how a homemade instrument stops Louis de Bernier from going insane and enjoy some more of the unusual and intriguing objects that have been brought into the Penguin studio, including a bottle of sun cream and a humble pebble. Now, becoming a writer is a dream that many people have, but just how do you
1: turn it into a reality? I thought somewhere in my head I was a writer, but I wasn't sure. It wasn't until I was in my very early 20s, and I just remember thinking, OK, I have the world ahead of me. I can go out there and do something. And I think I'm a writer, and I don't know if that's true. I've not actually finished a short story for ages. I've never written a novel. I've never actually written anything. And I'm probably not good enough yet to be a published novelist or anything. But I think I'm a a writer. And if I don't do something, then I could be in my 80s or 90s. I could be on my deathbed. And if I was on my deathbed, I'd be thinking to myself, I could have been a writer and I wouldn't know if I was lying. (sighs) So let me go out there into the world. Let me try and be a writer. If I fail... That's okay. I give myself permission to fail. I can turn around in eight years' time and go, I am not a writer. Actually, I am a hotel administrator. I should have known I was a hotel administrator all along. I will go and administrate hotels. But let me try. I also figured that the best way to become a writer was to do things that would let you write. So I became a journalist. And that was the start of it
0: all. Neil Gaiman with a rallying call to action. Give it a go or risk regretting
2: it forever. But nobody said it was easy. You know, I have to force myself to generate a first draft that I hate and then come back to it and go, well, I can't make this good, but I can suppose I can make it not actually embarrassing and then come back the next day and go, well, I, suppose I can make this just fine, average. And then, yeah, gradually and incrementally and uh, with enormous pain and procrastination. And oh, a you're avoidance. a procrastinator. So
3: you'll good do everything not to write. Yes,
2: well, no, absolutely. Yeah.
3: So what do you do?
2: Oh. To avoid it. Oh, it's. Answering I me mean, is. it's heartbreaking, the things I will do to avoid writing. I mean, I've caught myself the other day, I'd rolled up a little piece of foil into a ball and I was bouncing it off the wall and trying to hit it with my head as it bounced back and that's what I was doing rather than, it wasn't like I was off reading a book or going for a walk or having an adventure or watching TV, any of which would either be pleasurable or could possibly even be useful later on because you can never tell when something's going to a book you read is going to come up and surprise you and be useful later on. No, I'll just sit there answering emails that absolutely do not need to... generating emails, really, making making admin for myself. It's so heartbreaking.
3: Anything not to write.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have to but, take all of the little games that come with the computer off the computer, realising you've spent 40 minutes playing Solitaire, a game with absolutely no skill, a game the computer could play against itself, a game I do not enjoy, but I've been playing that for 40 minutes rather
3: than writing It's still better than writing. Because yeah. there's a precision to your plots and, you know, an incredible structure. So this obviously... It's like pulling teeth out of you to get that.
2: Plot in particular. Plot is an absolute bastard, yes. And uh, the hardest thing about it, I think, which is why I suppose another reason I really enjoy sketch shows because you don't need to to do with people. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> the plot is really hard to do, and I certainly think as... As a consumer of stories, a reader and a watcher and listener to comedy, it's all about the plot. And, there's, you know, you can enjoy the journey, but it's only when the plot works that you really are taken out of yourself and think, no, this is something I love. Um, So I do work very hard on the plot. John
0: Finimore discussing how writing can be a painful process and one that above all requires hard work, plain and simple. As for procrastination, John isn't the only one and sometimes you just have to embrace it. As Shappy Korsandi explains while talking about her debut novel, Nina is not OK. You're a procrastinator
3: writer. Horribly. Oh, you do, yeah.
4: I was actually diagnosed with attention deficit disorder um, and it made me a lot less hard on myself because I've learned that I can't go, right, that's it, tomorrow I'm going to do 4,000 words. That doesn't work for me. Tomorrow I might do 500 if I'm lucky. And I think taking that pressure off myself and understanding that my brain doesn't work that way and I did it. I did it.
0: Shappy Korsandi explaining why you shouldn't be too hard on yourself and how that philosophy can bear fruit. But if John and Shappy are making it sound a little tough-going at times, when inspiration strikes and the words start flowing, it can be an exhilarating experience, as Kate Atkinson reveals.
3: I saw an interview where, on the BBC where you talked about the fact that if you could be put into a five-star hotel room for a month with room service, you could write a book in a month.
5: Yes.
3: (laughs) But do you not think that real life coming in between your plans and the dreaming, wasting, boredom time that you might experience sometime, that all feeds into how you write?
5: No, I think in between novels, it feeds into how you write, living your normal life. Uh But then I think once you lock into writing a novel, you really don't want the distraction of, you know, is there any milk in the fridge? Or, you know, it's it's not. You become... Does your family go
3: into a state of suppressed terror No, her mum's on the c-
5: they are extraordinarily unhelpful can i just say that oh, <laughs> um no no i think they they do <laughs> they recognize i think that i go into a certain state where really into the I'm zone being, i'm being incredibly polite but really i would rather just be here doing this
3: do they have a word for it or oh, an i don't expression? know
5: you'd have to ask oh, okay <laughs> i don't think so but you know it is that that thing where you need to come to grips with something. And if you need to get to grips with something, unfortunately, a book is quite a big thing to come to grips with. It's not just a single small event. And I think that's that's hard.
3: And you go- always know what the beginning is going to be and what the end is going to be yes. right from the start. If the
5: middle that's tricky. Yes, yeah. I always know where I'm going at the end. If I don't have a title, and I don't know where I'm going, then I can't start. I can't write without a title. That's Impossible
0: Kate Atkinson, winner of the Costa Prize for her latest novel, "A God in Ruins," telling Richard how, for her, the process of writing can be intense and incredibly productive. For Paula Hawkins, talking about her smash hit, "The Girl on the Train," another really key factor was finding
3: her own individual writing voice.: So why did you feel this was your voice compared to what you'd written before?:
5: The books I'd written before, which fall under the women's fiction label. I didn't feel completely comfortable in that sort of romance genre. It's not really what I read. It was Thrillers was was always far more my kind of thing. And I hadn't really had a lot of confidence as a fiction writer, although that built up over the course of those other books. And I think that's how I got to be able to write The Girl on the Train, because by that point, I developed enough confidence in myself that I could actually go out and do the thing that I really wanted to do. And as soon as I started writing it, I felt, oh, God, yeah, this, I'm comfortable here. I feel like I can do this properly. Like I'm good at this.
0: Paula Hawkins on the need to find your own voice. Now, Irvin Welsh, discussing his latest novel, The Blade Artist, explains how he discovered his voice partly by realizing what he wasn't very good at.
6: I find it very difficult to write about people being nice to each other. Because um, if I go into a cinema, for example, and. Uh, I see people, i see a violent scene happening in a in a cinema I'll just sit there and look at it or I'll just sit there and laugh and you know, because i don't really believe it i don't i think that this is this is actors <sighs> up there they're they're doing their, they're doing their thing <laughs> but if i see actors kind of being you know being emotional or in love or kind of or upset you know i start to get really really emotional i I just completely suspend disbelief when it comes to an emotional scene you know so I can be sitting watching kind of, you know, I watch White Christmas uh, every year and I can be sitting watching the sort of General coming out with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye looking all baleful and I just be floods of tears, you know, even though I've seen it loads of times. So I get very kind of uh, emotional, emotional scenes and love scenes, so I find them difficult to write. A somewhat soppy Irvin Welsh, I think it's fair to say. Surprising? Well, a
0: number of our authors have opened up and revealed sides of themselves that you might not be familiar with. Fearless human rights campaigner Shami Chakrabarti talked about her role as a mother and daughter.
3: Are you hypervigilant and aware of of how you uh, educate your son?
7: I think I am probably hypervigilant, but... um but it's probably too late. You know, you, you can be hypervigilant <laughs> after the fact. I can remember when he was really quite small, he, you know, I don't know, six or seven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was tired and I come back from work and it was time to go to bed and and um, he wouldn't go. and And I sort of said something like, do you have to argue about absolutely everything and the little frown turned to a grin and he sort of said mum we're related it's in my dna and i said can you come here nice. and i'll show you what the police do to children's dna these days it's all taken and collected
3: were you argumentative with your father
7: absolutely i wasn't i was from
3: very right from the get-go i that was you can the, remember.
7: i was the archetypal precocious nightmare and actually, m- my son is less precocious because he's actually more knowledgeable. I think he found his arguments on rather more substance than I did. I was just instinctively argumentative from a very young age. And, and was your
3: mother argumentative? No.
7: So I say, I mean, I say in the in the acknowledgements, I thank my mother for, for for reading to me and my yeah. father for arguing with me, and that's pretty much how it was. She was the great reader and the lover of literature and cinema and all of those wonderful virtues. My father was the sort of pugnacious you know metaphorical street fighter and I, I suppose I have those those two elements in me.
0: Shami Chakrabarti during her conversation with Richard about her book On Liberty. For Shappi Kasandi, the process of writing her novel was often quite a painful one. Here she is reacting to a clip from the audiobook of Nina is not okay.
4: That was really emotional hearing that that particular excerpt actually awesome. I don't know if it when I said, I think I got a bit teary as I read it in the last line, my own compulsive behaviors and addictions started when I was in my teens, and my life changed when I was thirty one thirty two when I went to the rooms, I went to um, a 12 step and so this part of the book, I would not have guessed this. In my book, I I, I made up the um, experiences of the other addicts, but the atmosphere and that feeling of um, being amongst people who where 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 you didn't feel isolated, feeling
3: and not judged,
4: and not judged, and not having to explain. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah, as as I as I've said in the book, I, I found it a relief I didn't know existed, and it changed my life like completely changed my life i came out of a fog and it's still you know an ongoing process and yeah so that that was my own experience that i did massively draw on (laughs) yeah
0: shappi korsandi on her own personal struggles and how they fed into her novel on other occasions our guests opened up in other
6: unexpected ways Nobody believes this, you know. When I wrote the sex life of the Siamese twins, and I was mm-hmm. writing these big kind of lesbian sex scenes, it took me a long time to convince people that you know both my hands were on the keyboard at all times. Um, and it's pretty much it's the, it's the same. It's the same with uh, it's the same with violence. You know, you're not you're, you're not getting this massive kind of visceral kind of rushing about. It. You do see it as a very kind of mundane, kind of abstract job. You know, the whole thing's got to to read right typically
0: frank chat from Irvin Welsh. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, you've missed the mental image of Richard E. Grant in a pair of white socks with a copy of The Big Issue on his lap and knives in both hands quite something. You're listening to the second of a pair of special highlights editions of the Penguin podcast. If you've missed any of the editions so far, you can download all of them from iTunes and they're also available on SoundCloud, Audio Boom, or Acast. And if you do listen to them via Acast, you'll also find some behind the scenes pictures accompanying each podcast. Definitely worth exploring. Now, another author who spoke movingly about some of his experiences was the fantasy writer Neil Gaiman, who we'll hear from next. Neil talked about how he collaborated with Terry Pratchett on their novel Good Omens and revealed how hard he found it when Terry died, eight years after being diagnosed with Alzheimer's.
1: The weirdest bit about Terry dying was because of the slowness and because of the inevitability, I thought when he actually did die, that it wouldn't affect me. I thought, you know, we'd known that the end was coming, Mm -hmm. we were prepared. And somehow when he died, it was as if he came back into focus as a hologram. And suddenly there was my friend of 30 years and he wasn't there anymore and I couldn't call him and that hurt but he managed with alzheimers to write more great books than most people without alzheimers will write in their lives and i that's how i remember terry as just somebody who really was a friend but also a craftsman to the last Neil Gaiman
0: reflecting on his friendship with the late Terry Pratchett. But it's not always the authors getting emotional. When Colm Torbeen came to the studio to discuss his novel Brooklyn, he talked about the power of music, and it certainly had quite an effect on Richard.
8: I think for everybody Irish, the songs and the music are what could grip you, really. I was playing a thing on Australian radio one day, and it was an Irish song. And a man called into the programme. He wanted to talk to me at the end of the programme. He just said, you know, my mother sang that song. It was in Irish. Mm-hmm. We never knew what it meant. And we haven't, I haven't heard it for 50 years. I didn't know anyone else knew it. And you've just played it on the radio. So that idea of people bringing songs with them. I think anybody Irish, but I think it might mean that anybody from anywhere, maybe more than smell, maybe more than even Skyping home, hearing a song that reminds you of childhood. Yeah, and and it you. could be probably a, even a Beatles song for people, or yeah. you know, um, it wouldn't have to be an Irish traditional song. But I think for Irish emigrants, that idea of the music, the music could grip you and bring you instantly back to somewhere that you were even imagining as home. <laughs>
6: Erlou ibna quill a glitche oer of yryv law Shan raggor o ho she doworm cucu ogels tan sail nagal is bo sushin sohin
3: Say this man's name because I'm too choked up to even attempt it. The
8: song is called Cass on It's a love song, really, and that business must, you know, mustoring Gyal McCree, you know, would be the love of my heart, the bright love of my heart. And that's Irlo Linard, who's one of the great singers now in contemporary Ireland.
0: Richard E. Grant demonstrating how music, as with literature, can cut straight to the heart. Our next author certainly understands that and is revered not just as one of the world's greatest songwriters but as a great wordsmith too, Elvis Costello.
9: So by the time my parents met in the late 40s, they knew a lot about what they wanted from music and ended up sort of being a partnership in a way. My mum took money on the door while my dad tried to play bebop to Unwilling Ears in Birkenhead. They came south. He tried to break into modern jazz in London while she worked at Selfridges in the record department, you know. And so when I uh, write about it, it seems as if my dad's influence on me is sort of regarded more romantically. But I think it's only because if I were to write down all the things my mother did, there would be the same things that most people's mother do. You know, yeah. don't put your fingers in the plug. <laughs> is that coat warm enough? Have you had enough to eat? And also the fact that we sh- I shared music with her too. In some ways, she perhaps knew more range of music than my dad because she was obliged to know about it in order to... Cell records in the days before computers, you know, where you had to be able to look into a catalogue to recommend maybe one of five renditions of a hit tune and which recording of a symphony.
3: So you were just genetically imprinted right from birth with music from both sides.
9: I was to some degree, yeah. It was, it was the business
0: anyway, you know. Elvis Costello talking about his autobiography, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. Elvis seems to have had his musical career written into his DNA. And music is just as important to Louis de Bernier, author of The Dust That Falls
3: From Dreams. The classical guitar. Why have you brought this along today? Well, this isn't really a classical guitar. I I always... I
2: stand corrected. Well, no, 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 don't be corrected. Um, The thing is... I do have classical guitars, which I love, but I, I, I got to the point where I wanted um, a, something that played like a guitar but sounded like a lute, and really the only way to get one was to make it myself, so I made it myself. And, and I, I As lo- you do. I love it so much.
3: You just knocked one up, did you? I South just Norfolk.
2: knocked one up. and in, in fact, a lot of the wood came out of the garden. How long did it take you to make? Probably a couple of months, but you are waiting for glue to dry a lot of the time.
3: Does playing your guitar help you, or your guitar lute, as you call it, to meditate on the novel and its characters, or is that too fancy?
2: I think playing a musical instrument is, is my first rampart against insanity. If I couldn't play the guitar or some other instrument, I, w- I really would go quite bonkers very quickly. I, I needed to calm me down and to uh, even me out.
0: Chris Packham also spoke about the visceral rush that music can provide. The natural world isn't his only passion. Chris is also a lover of rock music, two things that maybe don't usually go together. Here he is describing watching The Clash back in 1977.
10: Yeah, it was uh, pretty fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I remember them coming out onto the stage and it lit up and and I was right at the front, which was a bit of a struggle for me because I don't normally like being jostled or touched by other people but I was completely crushed by thousands of people but that seemed to be I seemed to be able to put that out of my mind um, that the anonymity of those people was such that I could deal with it and the the
3: energy was just amazing and, so being a um, punk rock loving naturalist there must be relatively few of you on the ground
10: yeah, they certainly were say? at the time. I mean yeah. I, I read a piece of my diary that I'd gone badger watching in my bondage trousers. Now what about that? That must have been a first. Old bondage trousers it said. So they must have been the first ones that my mother made for me with straps and zips and everything. Quite an image, I'm sure you'll agree. And what
0: an obliging mum. From bondage trousers to a few more of the fascinating array of objects that have been brought into the Penguin Studio by guests, Chris comfortably won the prize for the most diverse set, which included a fox skull and a tadpole spoon. And
10: these. Yeah, these are very sacred things. These are two small hawk bells worn on the the legs of a hawk a trained hawk and they were made somewhere in pakistan in the early 1970s i imported them from lahore uh, after sending postal orders or, or something over there and these were worn on the uh on the legs of my first kestrel which i got in 1975
0: If hawk bells imported from Pakistan have been one of the more exotic objects, the next, brought in by Emma Kennedy, author of The Tent, The Bucket and Me, was a little more prosaic. We heard about Emma's exploits with a pink bucket in the previous podcast, and this object sums up the disasters that were her family holidays to France.
11: This is an interesting thing, because people are are very aware of the damage that sun can do nowadays. But of course, in the 70s... Suntan lotion was, was was virtually unheard of. I don't know whether you had a, a skincare routine. Well, as you when, can see, I look like
3: an old leather <laughs> handbag because I've never put any on.
11: <laughs> when you were growing up. But, I mean, it didn't even occur to anyone in my family to apply this mythical cream called suntan lotion. You've got to remember as well is that is that seeing any sort of sun was... Sort of like I imagine the Incas, if they'd seen a UFO, yeah. would, would have would have felt, you know, to a, a child, a, a British child, seeing blue skies and real proper heat. It was it, there Is was definitely phenomenon. something magical about the whole thing. So I have to
3: say that listening to your audio book as you described your sunburn was, I mean, it was really wince-inducing, and your dad didn't escape either. No, your sunburn moment.
11: The fact was, I was burnt to a crisp. My mother, taking off her sunglasses to take a better look at me, prodded at my shoulder, only for a bright white fingerprint to appear for a fleeting second. It was her touch test for sunburn, and I'd passed with flying colours. My skin was a livid crimson, and was giving off pulsing, radioactive heat. I hadn't moved in about two hours, and so as my mother insisted that we all leave and return to the campsite, I was unaware of the full extent of the agony to come. My skin, racked tight by the sun, screamed with pain at every bend and step. And when it came to sitting back in the Land Rover, I was so sore and sensitive that all I could do was perch on the edge of the seat, trying desperately not to touch any surface. Brenda was livid with the pair of us. Dad's shoulders were a mass of bubbling blisters, while I looked as if I'd been submerged in a vat of red paint. Don't expect any sympathy from me, she declared, waving a hand in our direction. What did I say? Put some cream on. You've only got yourself to blame. The, the sunburn incident yeah. ended with me being placed on a camp bed. I, I developed a dreadful fever and um, a small crowd gathered. Developed. Uh, around me, because obviously you know there's nothing to do on campsites. So, someone being laid out in the middle of the day on a camp bed was was quite the event. And there was a, it was about fifteen or twenty people gathered, just standing in their speedos with their arms crossed, staring at me. And a Dutch woman came over and said, "Oh, uh, in in Holland, I'm a nurse. Would you like me to take a look at her?" And of course, my mother was beside herself with with gratitude. And said, Oh, thank, would you? Thank you so, so much. And she came over to me, and I was lying on my back, and she flipped me over, and without a hello or a handshake, she pulled down my bikini bottoms and stuck a thermometer up my ladies' excuse me. (laughs) Someone at the back of the crowd clapped. (laughs) Literally. Like applause, applause. I'm now lying with a thermometer sticking out out of my arse. And she pulls it out and then goes, oh, yes, she's hot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And for a whole load more equally calamitous and hilarious events, do listen to the audiobook of The Tent, The Bucket and Me, read brilliantly by Emma Kennedy herself. When it came to one of Michael Acton Smith's objects, however, simplicity was key.
12: So this pebble was given to me by my niece and uh, I keep it on my desk and it's just a, an average random pebble from the, the street. But it reminds me to uh, look at the world through the eyes of uh, kids, that, that innocent look that we all had when we were younger, where everything was exciting and new, from a snowflake to kind of a thunderstorm. And I think that's a, a really wonderful way to, to go through life.
0: Michael Acton-Smith telling Richard about his book, Calm, in which he talks about mindfulness and the benefits that slowing down and refocusing can have on scrambled 21st century minds. And we'll finish this podcast with another clip from Michael, who had some very interesting thoughts on creativity.
3: Let's talk about creativity and how to unlock this. Do we all have inner creativity, in your view,
12: waiting to be unlocked? I think we do. I think we can all unlock that uh, crazy, creative side of us if, if only we know how. And again, lost and in the swirling, chaotic busyness of everyday life, that part of us gets tucked away. So, what do you think causes people to dismiss themselves as not being creative? If you go into a, a classroom and ask a group of children, "Are there any artists in this room?" Mm-hmm pretty much every hand will go up. Some kids will put both hands up. Mm -hmm. They're all artists. They're all creative. They can't wait to show you their creations. Once they get to the age of about nine, ten, you start asking that question, fewer hands go up. And until you get to adults, you ask a group of adults, are there any uh, artists in the room? Hardly anyone will put their hand up. What on earth has happened? Where has that creativity gone? We're still the same people. So I would say it's just something that perhaps the schooling system beats it out of us and uh, we think creativity is something frivolous and not important to succeed in the world that we live. I don't know, but uh, it's something that I think makes me, me sad and I wish more people could tap into their inner child and their creativity because I think a lot more wonderful things would be created and, and made in the world.
0: Michael Acton-Smith with advice to try and tap into your inner child. And who knows whether there's the next Kate Atkinson or Irvin Welsh just waiting to be released. As Neil Gaiman said at the start, if you don't give it a shot, you'll never know. So that brings me to the end of this second special highlights edition of the Penguin podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening and if you've missed any of the episodes featured, they're all waiting to be downloaded. You can do so via iTunes or you can seek them out on Acast, Soundcloud or Audio Boom. You can't say we haven't given you plenty of options. For the next episode Richard E. Grant will be back in the Penguin studio talking to Robert Harris about his latest novel, Conclave. And remember you can follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books. You can can subscribe to ensure you receive all the latest episodes and feel free to leave a rating or review. We're always keen to hear what you think.
4: From Penguin Random House Audio a woman drives to a secluded beauty spot on the Somerset coast CCTV watches her enter but doesn't see her leaving in fact she is never seen again. From the best-selling author of Never Coming Back and the chart-topping Missing podcast comes the latest David Raker missing persons investigation. For him, the mystery of where she went is only the start and chasing the truth will consume Raker and place him in grave danger.
13: You said your sister's name is Linda? Yes, she said softly, still a little bruised. With why, And her surname? Karin, Linda Karin. And she lived here in the UK? Yes, she's been over there since 1984. Before that, she was in Spain. She moved to Europe in the mid-70s and loved it so much that she decided to stay. So how old is she now? 62, almost 63. Her birthday is next month, 13th of September. Okay, and she disappeared when? Tuesday, 28th of October. Today was the 26th of August, so she'd been gone almost 10 months. Where was she last seen? I asked. Have you ever heard of Stoke Point? No, I haven't. I've never been there, obviously, but I've done a lot of research. I've seen pictures of it. It's some kind of beauty spot in the southwest of England. I think it's in Somerset, on the coast there, a few miles north of... uh... She paused, and I heard papers being leafed through. Hold on a second. Uh, Weston Supermare. Okay, I know Weston. The police found Linda's car there. She'd abandoned it. That's what it looked like. Her car was locked. Her purse and her cell phone were in the glove compartment, but her keys were in scrub nearby. She'd thrown the keys clear of the car. That's right. I don't know why. I didn't answer, unwilling to speculate in front of her. But one potential reason came to me right off the bat. Corinne wasn't the one who threw them away. Did anyone see her on the day she disappeared? No, Wendy replied. There were no witnesses. None. What about security footage? Nothing. They didn't have cameras there? They had a camera. But it didn't pick her up. A momentary pause. That's the weird part. What do you mean? There's only one way in and out of that place. Okay. A security camera at the entrance showed her going in through the main gate. But Lynn never came back out again. She never exited, not on foot, not in her car, not in anybody else's. Dead or alive, there's never been any trace of her. It's like the minute she passed through the gate to that place, she basically ceased to exist.
4: Available now on iTunes and Audible.